Hallelujah. Do you need the podium? I could have just uh, kept singing freedom, freedom, freedom. Eat it, eat it. Okay, all right. So uh, my name is Matthew Vines, it's V as in victory, I-N-E-S. If you were to Google my name, I'm just letting you know there is somebody else out there with that name. You could ask how many Matt Vines out there or Matthew Vines are out there, but God has ordained that there is another young man who's telling a story that's opposite of what I'm going to tell you tonight. And because God works in his way, He has ordained that down the road we'll be friends and there'll be a discussion about how I see the Bible and the power of God and what God's love can do because perfect love casts out all fear. And it tells us in Romans 8, 37, 38, 39, it says, nothing, not life, not death, not principality, nothing can take you from the love of God. So before, uh, before I get going, um, I want to introduce you to um, Gina. Gina is my future wife. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, 9.15, it says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I will tell you, as you hear my story, you understand why Gina is absolutely a gift from heaven for me. So uh, I do want to just read briefly uh, one verse for you uh, before I tell my story. Um, And this is in Revelations. Uh, It's chapter 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now think about that. The throne of God, you've got the 24 elders around there, and they each have a bowl that they're holding, and that bowl holds your prayers. Your prayers are so special to God, it's like a fragrant incense that goes up continuously before his throne. And I can tell you, my own experience, even if you were to pass from this life to the next, your prayers live on. Because God knows the appointed time when to pour them out onto that son or daughter that has been prayed over. So tonight, um, this is my third time to give this story. It's... um, It gets a little better, a little bit easier every time. It's raw because it is my life. But I can tell you, most assuredly, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. So I'm going to pray over us before I give you the story, and we'll launch right into it. Father God, we exalt you. Let this, this story, this testimony be about what you do, what you call us 
forth to do. How you bring life where there was death, and you call those things that be not and make them exist. Father God, let this not be about Matt Vines. It's all glory, all honor to you. For even today, I must decrease so that you can increase. Father, that you would anoint my tongue. As your word says, make it the tongue, the pen of a ready writer. Anoint the ears of all who hear this. For he who has an ear, let him hear. Condition the hearts, for your word says that you take out the stony hearts. You even take out the calloused hearts. You even touch the hurt hearts. And you put in a heart that you've purposed, a heart of flesh. You heal it. And Father God, I even pray for those that are not even here tonight, that your word goes forth. For we know that we overcome by the blood of your Lamb, Jesus. And we overcome by the word of our testimony. So that as the word goes forth, that it will prick the hearts of men and women. That will have far-reaching consequences beyond tonight that will even reach into eternity. Let every individual here tonight understand the power of their prayer. For that prayer goes up and it is never in vain. That prayer can bring freedom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, um, by profession, I am an attorney and a businessman. Um, so, I, I know some people have talked about, you know, I, I've gone to court at some point. I'm now a corporate attorney. Um, you know, I've, I've been in... In healthcare has been my, my profession and my specialization, specifically working with patients who are getting the runaround with insurance companies. So, um, but that's been my, tr my, my trade, my training. Um, and um, I certainly never wanted to be a minister. I never wanted to be a preacher. My dad was a pastor, and I saw what religious and Christian people could do to him. And I just said, okay, I, I want something opposite from that. Um, but God has a way of bringing you in line with his plan. Um, so uh, tonight, as I said, this is my third time to mention or to tell my story. Um, I, I won't keep us for too long, um, but it is timely. And most important is as I'm telling you this story, I want you to see, of course, Gina, the gift from God that he has put in my life especially. But I want you to imagine and just think, and if you'll just show me your hands, how many of you are actually praying or interceding for a child or a grandchild or a loved one that has not yet returned to the fold? Everybody. And I'm here to tell you today, keep praying. I am a living, breathing, walking answer to a, to a prayer. The prayers of my grandmother, the prayers of my parents. We ask questions a lot of times about how throughout someone's life 
when they come to a fork in the road, they make the decisions that they do. And I'm here to tell you, you have to think about things in a spiritual realm. And the first thing the enemy is going to consider before the child is even brought into this world. Now we know the Lord says, I knew you before when you were in your mother's womb. I knew you before you spoke, before you breathed your first breath. The enemy, he knows your bloodline. So when I was born, he was looking at my grandparents and my parents and my great-grandparents. My great-grandparents during the Depression in Arkansas, where I'm from, that's where I was born and raised. There's a little bit of a draw there. Um, Where I was born and raised, my great-grandparents during the Depression, they were touched by the Spirit of God and they decided to begin a church in their living room. People would meet there, and they even told me stories about they didn't have money at those days to go to the dentist and all that, so people would come in and be healed, and they'd have gold teeth. And I was like, okay. And I've heard more about that time and time again. But that was my great-grandparents. Grandparents, you know, my paternal grandmother was a prayer warrior, would just wake up and pray the word. She even, I remember the first time she really ever went over the Bible with me. She said, you can just go when you don't know what to say and just pray Ephesians and just start. And I'm like, okay. And so I had grandparents, great-grandparents, and then my parents. My dad was a pastor. Um, He grew up, um, was a little rebellious, uh, drank and partied quite a bit. Um, but at 20 years old, he came into the church, and God touched him, filled him with his spirit. And he met my mother, and just a few months later, they were married, and he was called into ministry. Um, my mother, her mantra, her breath and life, what she, what she lives and breathes, is souls, souls, souls. When she was a teenager in high school, Every Sunday, it was her purpose to bring another friend to church with her so that one more could be counted in that fold. And as, you know, as God would have it, she ended up um, as a nurse's aide, a CNA, for 25 years in hospice. And so what greater opportunity than to see someone at death's door? Because what she's told me is, as you live, so you die. If you have isolated yourself from everyone, if you've run from everyone, including God, it's going to be a lonely path that you take to the ends. So there's many times that she was winning souls right before they fell off into that Yes. And so when I was born, the enemy knew my heritage. And he said, you know, I know what the parents do. I know what the grandparents do. I know what the great-grandparents have done. Boys, we've got to put everything we can against this one to stop him in his tracks. The Lord even let me see once a vision of my parents even praying over my mother's womb because I'm the oldest child, the son, and how they would pray, God, let this child be raised up to be a mighty man or woman 
in your kingdom. So when I was born, yes, I was I was raised in the church. Um, every time the doors were open, that was I was there. When I was five years old, I asked Jesus into my life, saved at five, and by the time I was seven, I had been baptized in the Spirit. In fact, I was so excited about God that when they had an altar call, even at seven, I would go down and. And they, I call it, I said the fire hands. I would lay my hands on people and pray for them. Some people would say, well, you're just a little kid. Go and, uh, you know, hang out with your mom. But the enemy knew that he had to put everything against me to confuse me. What do we know? He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy but I'm so thankful that Jesus came that we could have life, we could have it more abundantly. That's why I'm standing here today. So around the time I was six or seven, um, things began to happen to me with other kids initially. Older boys uh, that would, um, much older, so I was you know, six years old, five years old, uh, you know, you've got a 15 or 16-year-old that's doing things, you know, to you. Uh, they're not yet an adult, but they knew what was right or wrong. In my innocence, I was okay. I wasn't really sure. And then, again, when I was seven, uh, eight years old, I had an older cousin who was uh, pretty forceful and uh, was, was pretty uh, rough with me and, uh, and abused me. Uh, by the time that I was 10, my parents took a new church in Arkansas. And, um, you know, at this point, it had only been a couple of uh, teenage boys. And um, my parents took a church, and I can remember the first day of school was Halloween. Now, when I was a young kid, I was skinny. I had the buck teeth, and I had the Coke bottle glasses. I was the epitome of the little nerd. To me, I didn't hunt, I didn't fish, I didn't play sports. I got excited about reading the encyclopedia. Um, every week, my mother would go, you know, the old green stamps, you could go buy, um, you know, dishes and things. Well, there was one year that they had encyclopedias. And so my mother, every time, would go get a new encyclopedia. And I was so excited about the next encyclopedia coming in so that I could read and study about the whole world and everything that was out there that was so much bigger than my little Arkansas small town world. And so it would be easy to pick on me. It would be easy to look at me and just think, sissy, feminine, not macho. So my first day in this new school, Halloween, I walked into the room and this boy who played football, before I'd even sat down, he says, well, look at that. It's Halloween, and we have a new freak in the school. And so over the next couple of years, especially him, but uh, some of the guys, they would torment me. They would call me faggot. They'd call me sissy. Uh, you know, they would do unspeakable things to me. It got to the point where 
I dreaded or feared going to the bathroom because I knew if I went, they might corner me and do unspeakable things. And so I'm trying to function as a kid, and, and I was smart, and I didn't want my parents to know how things were going. And so it just, I didn't want anybody to know. And, and at this point, I was thinking, do they know something about me that I don't know? Because they seem pretty confident in the names that they're calling me, and I am different. got to the point, you know, um, said, I mean, going to the bathroom, I would just not go to the bathroom and then end up with it all over me. And it just, it was, it was terror. And um, I was able to make it through a few years. And uh, when I was 12 years old, there was a young man that went to our church that began to take interest in me. And he would take me home sometimes after church. My parents, in you know, simple-mindedness, they were thinking, um, you know, this is a, a young man that's in the church. You know, it's, it's not a problem. And uh, shortly after uh, I got to know him, things crossed the line. And there been to be, it began to be a pretty steady sexual abuse that would happen uh, at least three years. I hadn't even hit puberty yet. And this young man is doing these things to me so that when I do hit puberty, I'm so confused and I'm, I'm so fearful of who I think I am because everyone has called me those names. And by the time that I'm 18 years old, it's not just that there was one person that the enemy had put against me. It wasn't just two teenage boys. Before I'm 18 years old, there were five adults, four women and a, and a woman, one woman, four men. So this marked young man that likely had a purpose in the kingdom, we're going to make him believe everything is different. We're going to tear him down so that he doesn't think that he can be anything else but who we call him. And time and time again, not just one individual, but another individual and another individual. So that by the time I'm 18 years old, there have been five adults that had the audacity to encroach upon my childhood. All this goes on, and I, I make it through high school. And I'll tell you that, you know, we know in the Scripture it says, train up a child in the way. And when he's older, he will not depart from that. I, I went to church every time the doors were open because my dad was a pastor. I grew up Pentecostal, but I grew up legalism. which was united Pentecostal, so... My sisters and my mother had long hair, long dresses, no makeup. And the way I knew God was a God of fear. One that when I was out, especially the horrors of being a teenage boy and the things that you do and think about, it's just I would get so fearful 
I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Monday. I hope I make it and survive until Wednesday so I can go back to the altar and get saved again and repent because I'll die and go to hell if I don't. And it was this perpetual belief that I was falling out of grace and that hell was, hell was the enticement that the church was putting in front of me to keep me on the straight and narrow. And so behind the scenes, you've got me being terrorized all the way through school. You've got adults that are violating me. And then I'm thinking, do I like boys? Do I like girls? I mean, there's, and I, I tried dating girls because I was so awkward. It wasn't like I had a lot of opportunities. But sex and identity, just, it was all, it just didn't really mean anything because it was, it was thrown at me so early and just so cavalierly that I just, I was so confused. And because I lived and walked in the belief that who I felt that I was becoming and what I was attracted to, I knew what the Bible said, and I was like, I don't want to burn in hell. And I would go and I would say, God, please change me. I don't want to have these feelings. I don't want to have this attraction. And another adult would come through. By the time that I was 16 years old, I was so fixated on ending my life. So if the enemy can't lie to you and he can't destroy you today, what he's going to ultimately try to do is to steal your very life from you. And so when I was a teenager, my job was delivering newspapers. I would deliver them seven days a week, every night. I can remember going down the road delivering papers at, you know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, God, I just, I've tried everything. I, I don't even feel you anymore. I don't even know. And, and I would begin to weigh the pros and cons of every way I could end my life. You know, if I, if I put a gun to my head, it would be quick, but then someone would have to find me. If I took a lot of medication, I could just go to sleep. But it would depend on where it happened. If I'm driving down the road, I could just speed up really fast and slam into a tree and be over, and a stranger could find it. And I was so fixated on how I could get out of the hell that I was living in. But God steps in. Even in the midst of all this turmoil, we happened to have an evangelist that came through when I was 16 years old. He was preaching, and the Spirit of God started to move. And he called me forward, and he came against that spirit of suicide. Now, I think back, I'm like, well, Lord, why didn't you show him all the other stuff that was coming against me? But I think that was the thing that was, I was at the edge of destroying myself. So I make it to college. Um, I'm on a scholarship. I, I was one of the smart kids that was always, I said, I was a brainiac, so... Um, I ended up going to a small school there in Arkansas. I was dating a girl at the time. Uh, you know, I, I, I felt that I loved her. She was a great woman, a uh, great young lady. And um, it, just, it just didn't click necessarily. And so I was doing it out of obligation 
and trying to make myself desire something that I just had no interest in. And so my freshman year um, in the dormitory, um, I made friends with several people. And so one of the guys that I became friends with, um, we grew close pretty fast, and we became best friends. Um, his father also was a pastor. He had grown up in the mission fields, actually, was born in Africa. So you know, we had kind of that PK thing going on. Um, but quickly, what was friendship, because I didn't really have a lot of guy friends and I didn't understand the nature of male relationships, what happened was this friendship, it took on a form that was unnatural. Because for once in my life, it seemed right, because all these other times was someone who was older, someone who was forcing me, someone who was confusing me. And for the first time, it seemed like this was the real deal. And so as an 18-year-old, a freshman in college, um, you know, I felt that I fell in love. And, and what happened was, over the years, I stayed with him. Um, he was my best friend, so we could talk. But um, life just kept happening. And for me, I quit going to church because I believed that God had given up on me or he'd never answered my prayers. And by this point, I thought, it seems to be okay because I finally found someone that seems right. And I ended up, you know, going to law school in Virginia. Um, and we had moved from place to place. So I lived in Arkansas. And then we moved to Tallahassee, Florida when he went to graduate school. And I worked at a law firm. We went to Virginia, where um, I went to law school. And then I got a job at a big firm in D.C. Um, and we had been together at that point 10 years. Um, this was in the 90s. It's different than it is today. Um, Will and Grace wasn't even on the TV. And so for me... I just wanted to get out of Arkansas, and so I got as far away as I could and was living what I felt was a happier life as I grew older. And so after we'd been together for 10 years, and I was taking this job in D.C., I was like, well, you know, I've never come out to my parents, so we should do that because we keep moving along. And, um, and so that's what I decided to do in 2002. Um, my parents were coming to see me graduate from law school. And so uh, before they came to Virginia, I told them, I was like, well, this is not my roommates. This is my life partner. This is who I've been with for 10 years. And this is who I plan to be with for the rest of my life. I'm going to marry him as soon as I can. Now, my parents... Um, they took that like a kick in the gut because they asked, what did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? And certainly in hindsight, there's things that, you know, I know how to do differently when I'm a parent. And that's what I would say is for those of you that have children, you keep your eyes on them. You absolutely know by the Spirit. You test because you know that the things that are of God, the people that are of God, that have the Spirit of God, and those things that may not. And we ask those questions so that we know who our children are around, because there's but a small window 
of influence. And it's so much harder now because it's not just the television, it's not just the other kids that were around. Now you've got everything on your own little handheld computer. And the world is your oyster. And so you can be anything, you can do anything, you can watch anything. The reality is the statistics are, do you know the average age of the child who's watching pornography right now? It's eight. One in every three women has been sexually abused. And one in every five men has been sexually abused. And so this is not a story or situation that's going to go away. And if the abuse isn't there, and if the bullying's not there, then if the opportunity is there for something to catch their attention or to confuse, we have to be sure that our kids know who God is. And the most important gift that I believe you can give your children and your grandchildren is the gift of knowing that you pray. Because what greater testimony than a child saying, I can remember the mornings when I'd get up, I could smell the bacon, but I could hear Daddy in there praying. I can remember as I drifted off to sleep, my mother would put her hands on my chest and she'd pray over me. And then I would hear her crying out even in the other room. The greatest gift that you can give your children, your grandchildren today and in the future is praying over them and letting them know their identity and praying. And so my parents, um, they went to my graduation. They went home to Arkansas completely defeated. And they went to a small church. It's even it's, it's smaller than this, a small, small church out in rural Arkansas. And... Um, the pastor's uh, you know, grandmother in her 70s. And they went to church, hadn't told a soul anything about their son or what they had been facing. And they were in the service. And as she was preaching, she stopped and she says, Brother and Sister Vines, the Lord has a word for you and he wants me to pray over you. And so they, she, they came out and she prayed over them. And they both were slain in the spirit. And she walked over and she said, the Lord tells you, there's revival coming to your family. And your son's lifestyle will change before your very eyes. Now, I didn't know this. I was living the life in D.C. But my mother said, I got a word from God, and I hung on to that. Because His word is forever established in heaven. When you can't see the path because there's so much storm, because there's so much fog, because it's dark, it says His word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So that was 2002. And you would think because that was the word of the Lord, it came quickly. Or that I got better. But I actually began talking about my celebration marriage and inviting all of my family and friends in for me to say my vows. 
And I was living the life in D.C. I mean, I was a corporate attorney. I was successful. I had the perfect car. I had the perfect condo. I had the perfect body. I had everything that I thought was awesome. And I could go out on the weekends and I could party. I could take drugs. I could drink. And the weekends were my time. And I'd start the week over working again. And it was a cycle like that. And I look back at how empty and how sad I was. I would look in the mirror and I would say, I hate that person. I hate who you've become. I hate everything that you represent. But I'm just, I'm not going to think about that because what I believe is every one of us has a place that God has carved out in us. That is a secret, special place for Him. And we can try to numb it. We can try to fill it with everything else. It may be painful. Um, you know, whatever the case is, we may pursue whatever. But that is God's space that only He can fill. And so until you allow Him to fill that place, we're gonna, you would walk away empty, walk around empty. And so that was me. The worst Part of the day for me was trying to drift off to sleep. Because I could be busy all day long. I could focus on all the things the world had to offer me. But it's in those moments when you're trying to drift off to sleep, that's when he tries to slip in. And then I would be like, I can't, I can't go to sleep. I'm like, I don't. I would be restless and I'd get up and then... Sometimes I'd call my parents. I'm like, will y'all just pray over me? I just, I'm not at peace. And my parents would dutifully pray over me. I knew God was important and he meant something. And I tried finding, if I wasn't trying to numb the pain or deaden the pain or fill it up with everything else the world had to offer, I would go to church um, you know, for me, I went to a Methodist church for a while. I even saw, taught Sunday school. For me, as a gay couple, they were affirming and they were happy with my lifestyle. And so I felt good and I could go to church. But it didn't change me. And I'd go through various denominations just trying to find something that would appease my desire to have an experience with God, but not so much that it would shake my world. And so in 2009, this was seven years after the word my mother and dad received, I would travel all over the country for work. And I'd often go back to Arkansas and I'd visit with them. And, you know, they frequently tell me, we'd like for you to be in church with us. And I didn't want to do it. I'd always planned to leave before the weekend hits. Um, and so it just so happened that in March of 2009, I ran out of excuses because I had two clients, one that scheduled a meeting on a Friday and another one that was like the next Monday. So I had to stay for the weekend. 
I was like, okay. And so I have twin sisters that are younger than me. There's just the three of us kids. And my sisters were saying, you know, they were completely supportive of me. They're like, it's okay. You know, just go to church with us. It's a grandma. She's not going to embarrass you. I mean, you know, and I'm like, okay. So, so I went to church with my parents, my sisters. I sit on the very last row at the very back corner And as soon as the last amen was said, I was like, hallelujah, I can get out of here. Nobody called me out. God didn't slay me in the spirit. Nothing happened, and I could get out of there and say, okay, I've been. My dad comes back, and he says, I want to introduce you to Sister Mary. Okay, he said, she's heard about you and how proud we are of you. So... I went up to the front, and people were leaving the church. Um, and so I went up, and I you know, just introduced myself to her. She came right over and just put her arm around my, my waist, and she came up to, like, right here. And just like a grandmother, she just says, oh, she's like, it's just so good to meet you. But then God moves on grandmothers. <laughs> and she looks at me, and she says, the Lord says, You knew me at a very young age. I even filled you with my spirit. But because of the things that came against you, because of the things that tried to destroy you, when you came to a fork in the road, you took that path less traveled, the darker path. And as you went down that path, you got further and further and further from me. And you thought that I wasn't there. But I'm here to tell you, I always was here with my arms wide open, knowing that you, my son, would turn back and look to me, and I would grab you into my arms and say, welcome home. Well, I broke down because I'm like, everything that I had tried in my life wasn't working. So, you know, I prayed with her and I said, I do want a relationship with God, and I I recommitted my life. I was like, I'm going to do better. And I got on a plane a few days later, and I went back to D.C. And I'm in a relationship with someone that I love, that has been my best friend, that has seen me from 18 years old on. At this point, I'm in my 30s. And I was like, well, God, if you could do this for me, then you could do this for him. And it would be great because you could fix us both we go both find a woman, and then we could be happy, and no one has to get hurt. And so I got back to D.C., and um, I went to church. I found a little church that I went to. It was hardcore Pentecostal, so all I knew at that point. But I was in that church service, and the thing that I even know from today, I mean, I think about God and how he speaks to us. And, you know, in the Pentecostal faith, we're, we're so hung up on, I want a word. I mean, just we want something from God. And I just think back to time and time again how God cared enough for me that he would put somebody in my path that gives something to me that would just keep me hanging on. So I went to this church, and I, was, I had my head down, and I, I was barely even able to put my hands up because there was something telling me If these people knew what you did in darkness, if these people knew what you did on the weekends, if they knew who you were, 
How dare you put your hands up, you filthy, dirty, shameful. But I'm here to tell you, it says in Isaiah 50, in the seventh verse, my God will help me. Therefore, I won't be confused. Therefore, I will set my face like a flint, and I shall not be ashamed. So the enemy will try to beat you down and say, everybody knows your past. But I'm here to say, the enemy knows your past. But he has no control over your future. So this man came over and he said, Sir, this is my first time in this church. I don't know you. My daughter sings in the praise and worship, and I'm just here visiting from Indiana. But three times the Lord has told me to come over and put, to let you know he wants to give you a new identity. Wow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so this is 2009. And I, would leave, I left that church service, and I was so excited and so on fire and just so sure that God loved me. And I would go and I would pray and I would be so sincere. But oftentimes what happens is we become Sunday morning Christians. And so I would go to church on Sunday morning and I would feel all the goosebumps and I would get excited. And I'd go home on Sunday night. I wouldn't crack the Bible again. I wouldn't get into the Word I didn't even feel the need to speak to God or to pray. And so as the week would go on, I'd grow colder, and then I'd become more disappointed. I might start you know, partaking in things. And, and um, it was a cycle that I was on. I was the definition of the lukewarm Christian that was riding the fence. The Human Rights Committee, HRC, which is the biggest gay and lesbian lobbyist arm in D.C., even at one point looked at these two Arkansas boys that had been together at this point approaching 20 years, and the marriage debate is heating up. They're like, if we put these guys on the cover of our letters, on the magazine, how could America say no to two all-American southern boys? How would you say they don't deserve to be together? How would you have the audacity to say they shouldn't have children? And so the enemy, time and time again, would come at with all these, you know, dazzling things, and I'm like, I'm like, I, I, I've got a relationship with God. This is not who I am, and and I would. Um, I would ask God, I was like, will you fix him so that I can move on? But the thing is, is this was a person that I loved, and I did not want to hurt. And so I would try to help God out and bring him to church with me, and it just, it wasn't the same experience. And so for four more years, I lived in D.C. from 2009 to 2013. And I would go to church, I'd feel good. I'd go home. My job, my life was successful. Things were really continuing to take off. I felt like I had everything I wanted, and that eventually God was going to work this all out. 
the reality is we own property together. All of our um, all our assets that we own together. I mean, I owned a company at this point that had gone from eight people to 350 people. It was successful. So just like a typical divorce, you've got to you know um, you got to look at assets. You've got to go look at the 401ks and everything. And so. I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to leave him. And so I just kept in that lukewarm state. I would do just enough of God to make me feel at peace and hope that he would do enough to fix it all. But I wasn't really seeking him to change it. And so uh, it was four years later, 2013. One night, I, um, I was at home. I remember it was a Thursday night. I was at home. I'd been drinking some wine, and I decided, um, you know, I'm living in D.C. It's okay to smoke pots. It, I'm entitled to this because it helps me relax. So I'd rolled me a nice one, and I was smoking in my place all by myself because I was entitled to this. It was a Thursday. It wasn't Sunday, and I would deal with Sunday on Sunday. And so I was feeling great. <laughs> And then there came a voice that said, that's enough. And when I heard it in the apartment where I was alone, I didn't think about it before I hit my knees. I didn't think about it even before I realized all of the high and all the drunkenness is gone. And I just began to weep and cry because I knew instinctively that was God. And for the next four hours, I poured out my heart to him. I got serious. The word tells us if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And for the next four hours, what I realized is all the things that I had not addressed, all the hurt, all the pain, all the shame from all those years, in that four hours, I had more than 100 feelings of release. And as I would be on my knees and I'd be sweating and sometimes vomiting and just, and I would be praying, I'm like, God, I just, I'm, I want for real. And then he would bring to my vision, and it was dark at this point, he'd bring my vision on the right. I could see an experience of something that had defined me, something that had transpired in my youth that had put me on this path. And I would see it. And I'm like, God, I just, I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry I've let that impact me. And as I'm saying this, I would then see a vision of someone praying for me. And I could see, just as clear as I was watching TV, I'd see my parents, and I would hear the prayers. And so as I'm going through this battle of getting past this wound, of getting past this pain or this shame of this experience, on the other side, God is letting me know this is the incense from the bowl that's being poured out for you right now for this deliverance, for this moment. It's 2013, and five years earlier, my grandmother had passed away. And twice over that hundred plus times, I saw her praying, Father God, I do not give up on my grandson. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know except you, because I know that all things are possible with you. And the prayers of the saints, of people that knew me and my family, it got me through. 
And when I came up off the floor, after four hours, I was transformed. I said, God, I'm not going back. I'm leaving everything I can. And so that was in August of 2013. And by Christmas, I had moved home to Arkansas. I had packed up everything in D.C. I had left. And there's the painful conversations that I'm hearing. I'm sorry. If there's something I'll do differently, I'll change. I'll do anything. I love you. And it just, there's nothing more painful than to think, it's not you, it's me. And I just can't go back to that anymore because it was only destroying me. And so I made it home to Arkansas. And the separation period began. We loggered up. And for the next three years, it was back and forth. They said my company had taken off. We owned property. And I was just like, God, just help me. And you know, I got involved with the church. Um, it, was a, it was a small church, a small town. And my pastor is about my age. He was my first real spiritual father. And what I didn't realize, the enemy had robbed me of in this new walk that I'm trying to walk. Now, it didn't change my desires. It didn't change. All I had said is, God, I want to walk differently with you. But when push came to shove, I still had the same thoughts, the same desires. And I just said, okay, well, there's a place in Isaiah where it talks about the eunuch, and there's a place where Jesus even talked about the eunuch. So I guess I'll be a eunuch for you, and I just won't be with anybody. And my pastor, early on, the Lord told him that I was special, that I was a revivalist, because I'd go to church and not, yes, I'm a lawyer, and those from Suncoast here in Florida will tell you, when church starts, I put the lawyer behind, and the freedom comes on. I'm typically at the front, jumping up and down, praising God, because I am boldly in the throne room. And so my pastor, he began to teach me how male affection could be. When a guy would come up and hit me on the shoulder or just grab my arm. You grabbed my arm the other day. Back in the old days, I would tense up and not even be able, because I was like, I don't want anybody to think anything's wrong with me. I don't know how to, just don't touch me. I didn't understand. And he began to work with me time and time again on how to have straight male guy friends. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I'm still going through this divorce. I said, I did not want to preach. I did not want to be a pastor. I would pray. I would go through seasons of fasting. I was living by myself now. And I was like, God, I just, I've lost you all these years, and I just want to make up all that time. And I would just, I would go for hours, and I would walk, the hallways of my home by myself and just talk to him and I would cry and, and just tell I just want to do what you call me to do. People would walk into the door of my home and they would feel the presence of God. And that's not a Matt Vines thing. That was the hunger. He says that if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be filled. And so for me... 
what I didn't understand is he was molding me. He was making me into a revivalist because I had a story that the church probably didn't want to hear because it makes some of them uncomfortable. But I have a story to say, this is what the prayers will do. This is what freedom means. And so the Lord had been talking to me, and I, I felt him saying that the church needed to go through a season of, of intense prayer. And so I told my pastor, and he said, well, just Sunday morning, I want to put you up on the pulpit. Just tell him what God told you. And so I got up to tell him, you know, I think the Lord has told us to go through a 24-hour prayer. And as I was talking, a whole different experience came upon me. And it was like I had been drenched in hot oil or lava. And I began to speak scriptures and I began to say things. And before I knew it, everybody in the crowd was standing up. I'm like, I don't even know what's going on here. I was just talking about prayer. And I sit down and my pastor, he's, you know, later he says, well, what do you think about that? I was like, well, I don't know. He says, well, there's an anointing, even for lay people, but just think about it. I'm like, okay. He wasn't going to tell me I was called to anything. And so we started having what we called tag team preaching, where the different ministers in the church would give five minutes, and they give them a theme to say, in the year 2016, tell the church what you think God is calling us to. Give us five minutes each, we just go through. And so he called me, and he says, I want you to be on rotation." I was like, okay. Well, the five minutes, it became 10, 15. They kept resetting the timer because the fire was falling into place. People were running. And I, I was like, so this is what it means to step into the anointing. And, and uh, I was like, okay. And so... I just didn't begin to seek that. I was like, God, it's not something that I want. It's not something I even desire. Take this cup from me, but if there's something you want me to say, I will do it. So in uh, July of 2016, my pastor, he said, you've done a couple of these tag teams. The Lord wants you to step out as a man, and he wants you to deliver a sermon as a man, and you deliver the whole thing. I'm like, okay. So um, I did. I preached that night, um, and to me, it was, you know, it was just pretty typical. Um, most of the people in my church did not know my story because there was so much shame in, in that background. I didn't want to tell people. I wanted to go to church, and I wanted to just worship and fit in with the crowd, and nobody know my past. Um, but there were people that my mother, who was so proud, she would say, if Matt hasn't told you his story, God has done something for him. That's why he worships. Because you see Psalms 40, the second and third verses. You've heard this before. He pulled me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock, and he established my going. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise, Many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. We overcome by the word of our testimony, but our testimony is just as much about what people see. 
And so um, that was July 2016, and they put it out on YouTube. My sisters put it on Facebook. And a couple weeks later, my partner called me. We'd been fussing for three years, and, you know, um, and he says, I saw your sermon, and I know you're never coming back. So I'll give you what you want, and I'll take this. And um, within a month, um, everything was all signed. And on October the 18th, the paperwork was filed in D.C. from my divorce. Because at this point, it had been legal, we had become married, and the paperwork was filed. And so I, I was like, I am free. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a eunuch or whatever. And I went to a camp meeting down in Tampa with Rodney Howard Brown. If anybody knows him, he's all about the fire and the laughter. And, you know, he had, I'd been to a few of his camp meetings, and, you know, he'd pulled me out, and I'd been thrown across the room. And so I... <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, God, this season of my life is over, so I don't have anything weighing me down anymore. And so I took a week off of work, just like Gina took a week off work. The best kind of vacations is when you can just be with God and with people, celebration. And so that was in October, and I, I was going down, and I was like, you know, God, I trust in you. I'm, I'm following you. You've called me, but I don't. I don't have that desire. When I look at a woman, I mean, sure, they're, they're cute, they can dress nice, but like, that's just, that does not, it does not draw me. I was like, and so I just, as I said, I will just be alone if I have to. Um, but at the beginning of that camp meeting, I had been studying, and of course we know over in Isaiah 58, 6, it tells us, is this not the fast that I've called that will loose the bands of wickedness, that will undo the heavy burden, that will free you from oppression, that will break the yoke? I was like, this breaks the yoke, but I also know the anointing destroys the yoke. And so I'm like, I'm reading about this fasting, and then I read over where Jesus said, this kind comes out by, by prayer and by fasting. I'm like, well, God, I'm, I'm going to spend the next week at this camp meeting. I'm getting saturated with you anyway. I'm purposing with you. I'm not going to eat again until I don't do anything but just eat, breathe, sleep, think about a woman. Because if that's what it's going to take, I'm, just, I'm going to fast, according to Isaiah 58.6. And so... Um, <laughs> powerful services, you know, and I'm just, I mean, just day in and day out. And so it was about Tuesday of that week that I was slain in the Spirit. Somebody prayed for me, and I was slain in the Spirit, and I was out. And then this was down in the church in Tampa. And so I got up, and I was just, I was drunk and I, in the Spirit. And I just, I sit on the front row. And as I'm sitting here, I look up at the pulpit. And I could see a vision. Now, at this point, I was familiar with dreams and visions because God had begun to drop them into me regularly to show me where he was taking me. That was when one night I had the dream of the other Matthew Vines because I would get Google News alerts about this guy who was going from campus to campus talking about God and the gay Christian. 
And I was like, there's another Matthew Vines out there, and he, he's gay. <laughs> I was like, well, that's not my story. And then people would call and say, you know. Um, and so there's a funny story you can ask Kathy about sometime. was when they were doing the bio for this. They couldn't find my bio anywhere, and so they kept coming in with this guy. <laughs> and she's like, I know this is not what Betty said. So she's like, Betty, call me or text me. She's like, I need to make sure this is message. <laughs> so Google it, Matthew Vines, and you'll see the story. Um, and so, uh, so I understood that God would show you things to come. And so as I was sitting there on the front row, I looked up and I saw, I knew myself, I was slain in the Spirit, I could see myself, and then I looked over to the right. And there was a woman. I didn't, I didn't see anything. I couldn't see the hair. I couldn't see the face. I was looking at just feet. And I saw my feet up. And I saw her feet up. And they were just really little feet. I didn't know anything about women's feet, but I was like, those were small feet. <laughs> and so I went home, um, and I was still fasting. I was like, I was, you know, and it's day seven. It's day eight. And I get home to Arkansas. Camp meeting's over. And I'm like, okay, it's day ten. And I woke up, and I was like in prayer. And, um, and uh, I happened to, at first... I'd seen a magazine that had come through the mail that I was just had on my coffee table, and um, there was there was a woman that just I, mean, I just, just kind of looked at it. I was like, was it? I was like thinking, was it the subject matter? What was it that I kept looking? Okay, and so then I turn on the news and I'm watching this, and there's a woman who's giving the news on the weather, and I'm just like, wow. <laughs> and then I realized. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I started thumbing through magazines. And, and so um, what's amazing is I'd gone home and I told my sisters, I'm very close to them, there's just the three of us, I'm the oldest. And I told them, I was like, I know there's going to be a woman. I know this fasting. And they would say, are you eating yet? I'm like, I'm not eating yet. Um, I, but I told him, I was like, I know it's going to break because he showed me there's going to be one that's just like me. She's going to be all about wanting God, and she's, she's going to be on the floor with me, you know, because, you know, I like the fire, and I like the anointing. And, and so they were like, well, what? I was like, well, all I know is she has little feet. <laughs> and so, um, and I am winding up here, sorry, Okay. It was the next month, so October, um, yeah, it was October the 18th, yeah. It was October the 18th that my divorce was filed, and I had that, that fasting in between. And so then in November, it was November the 17th, I traveled for work all the time. I was in the Atlanta airport on a Thursday, and I was flying home from North Carolina back to Arkansas. Now, you go to Little Rock, you always go through Atlanta or Dallas because there's nothing direct, so... I was frequently at this restaurant at Atlanta Airport because I was there at least twice a week. <laughs> and so it was a Thursday, and it was just me. It was busy with all the business travelers, you know, like 5, 6 o'clock. Um, and I was sitting there. In fact, I knew waiters, and I knew the people that were at the bar area because I sometimes would just order my food right there at the bar. So I knew them, and um, I'm sitting there and um, at the bar area. Um, and there's a woman that sits down next to me. And when she comes up, um, you know, she was looking for a place to put her purse while I helped find a hook. 
And then I, I was like, I said, when I, you could put your bag over there on the wall so it's not in the way. And she gets up here and she sits next to me, and the waiter came over, and I was like, take her order first because I've got a couple hours. I didn't realize I was being a southern gentleman. <laughs> but, but we begin to talk. And she's a nurse practitioner, and I'm a healthcare attorney, and we're just talking healthcare. And I was thinking at the time, wow, this is cool because I, on my team of 300 people at my company, I had eight nurses. I was like, I really need someone that can manage all of them because nurses can be. And so I was thinking, you know, this would be kind of a cool person. She lives in Tampa, and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm there all the time. I have clients there. Um, I didn't talk about anything about being down there in Revival, but... The conversation happened, and um, at the end, you know, I was giving her my card because I was like, you know, if you're ever looking for a job, change or whatever, here's my number, and she gave me her card, and uh, she says, well, the next time you're in Tampa, you know, let me know. I may or may not be there because she traveled like me. And so I took her card, and she walked to catch her flight, and at the moment that she walked away, it hit me that I had just flirted for the first time. And I was just like, wow, she's just... And I looked at I said, I got her information. And I said, thank you, God. And he said, well, that's the one. I'm like, okay. I'm like, this is the first one. And so I sent a group text on iPhone to my sisters, and I said... You know, I'm all feeling goofy, and and uh, and we've got a screenshot of it. You know, I said, you know, I just I think I just met her. I mean, she's a nurse practitioner. She lives in Tampa, and my sisters. You know, normally the first question would be like, you know, uh, what does she look like? What do you think the first question is? Does she have small feet? And I said, yes, hallelujah, because <laughs> Gina has the six size feet. So. <laughs> Sometimes five and a half, but yeah, the six. So, um, and so it just, it had been 30 days from my divorce and all that had transpired with God. And then he puts her in my life and I'm, I'm like, I don't even know anything. And I'm like, I'm careful about reaching out to her because I don't want to be too forward, but I was just, and, uh, and so I waited like two and a half weeks and I found a reason to go to Tampa so that way I wouldn't be too awkward and I uh, reached out to her we on email and then and then we ended up texting and then we started talking um you know and the first thing she asked and this is my biggest fear was for me to be you know in my 40s at this point um the question is going to be well what kind of what's your past I mean have you been married you know or what's wrong with you and so I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say? I mean, I, I, well, number one, I'm not going to lie. And so, you know, um, she wanted to make sure that I wasn't one of those sleazy sales guys that had, like, a wife at home was trying to mack on women. But, you know, so I said, well, look, I'm divorced, but let's not talk about it. And so we started talking on the phone, and I said, look, I've, I've got a bail relationships in the past. And she says, I do too. I was like, so let's just focus on the future, get to know each other, and, you know, and I'm not going to hide anything from you, but just I'd rather just get to know you. And so we did. We started getting to know each other. We talked. She said that she knew things were different because, yeah, I'd go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and she knew I was more than just your typical religious guy because I started sending her scriptures. 
And, um, yeah, so we, uh, we talked, and then on December the 27th, 2016, I flew down to Tampa and took her out on, a, on our first date. And um, I mean, when she walked in, just, I, I mean, I just I couldn't get over just how amazing and the fact that I even had a chance to talk to her. And it just, the chemistry was wonderful. And uh, we went out and spent the whole day the next day, and I was getting ready for New Year's and left, and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to tell her. So I went into a seclusion in a cabin that I go to up in Virginia, usually in the New Year's, and I was there for three days by myself with God. There's no TV, no phone, and I was on my face saying, if this is real, I don't believe that you're going to dangle something in front of my face as a carrot to say you cannot have it. So I said, but just give me the words to say so that I don't mess this up. And so um, I told her, I was like, I really want to talk to you. And so we decided to FaceTime. And uh, once I got back to civilization, and, uh, and so I began telling her my story. And Gina would tell you that at that point, at the end of it, she says, well, thank you for sharing. She's like, I'm going to need some time to digest all this because I had no clue. I thought maybe you had a drinking problem like most attorneys or yeah, I thought that's what you were talking about with your past. So um, she prayed about it, and it was, was it the first morning or the second morning? The second morning, she said, I woke up, and I had peace like I've never had before. And I realized I didn't know how it was going to work out, but God was going to be okay with this and was going to help me. And so she said, Matt, I want to continue this journey with you. And... Um, and so that's, you know, it, it hasn't been ideal because, you know, I was the guy that thought that I don't understand women, I don't get it. And then suddenly all of my married guys were like, nobody does. You'll never understand, so get over it. But, you know, I beat myself up because I'm like, I can't figure you out, I don't get it. And then, and then I would just, I'm like, I'm just going to give up because it's pointless. And it was just time and time again. And I'd get angry because I'm like, why was all of my life stolen from me and now she's loving me and I don't understand anything about women or the affection or just being around them and just and am I am I being the right guy? Am I just am I doing the things that a guy would do with a woman? And Gina has continuously been like building me up. And so there was someone who told us once that even a word over us says and it was even spoken today in our afternoon. Someone said something along this, but God said, you will begin to see yourself. You hate yourself when you look at yourself, but you'll begin to see yourself through my eyes because Gina sees you through my eyes. So not about what's wrong, but what, what's great. And so, so Gina and I have been placed together by God. And... Um, and so that's why I say my future wife, I mean, it's, I don't know the normal ways of, you know, everything that goes. So I ask people, I'm like, well, when am I supposed to do this? I mean, so I've got things in my mind, I think. But um, anyway, so I think, I think earlier today, you were like, you know, right, it's an open invitation. Um, so... Um, well, what we've decided, we have talked about weddings. We'll have a ceremony, but then I said, you know, I've got people in Arkansas, you've got people in Tennessee, we've got people in Florida and now Vermont. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll save vows, but you know, this is so big, we're going to have like a Holy Ghost wedding, so 
you know, where it's going to be like, this is what God does. He brought a man and a woman together, and so that is the amazing part. And so that is my testimony about what God has done for me. And so now I am just running, running. I'm not even, and I know someone told me today, you know, this is not, you know, a 60-yard dash. God says this is a marathon. You've got to be prepared to run the whole, and I'm, I'm doing it. And so he's given me a woman that is empowering me. I mean, when we pray together every night, when we pray together during the day, I mean, we seek the face of God. We intercede, like I know a lot of you do, for our nation. And we know that at this time, for a time such as this, the voice of what God has spoken through me and has done in my life, there is a season people need to hear that. And so that's why I go back to say that if you're praying or believing for something, if you're standing in the gap for something, keep doing it. Be faithful. For as you are faithful with God, He will also be faithful with you. So that is my story, and I give all honor, all glory, and all praise to God. Thank you.